right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm a little flat today. My son, le- my son left for the Navy yesterday, and I appreciate all the uh, emails that I've been getting from y'all. Some of you guys have been sending me notes on Facebook and uh, writing on my wall there. He's my first kid to uh, fly the nest. And uh, somehow I just don't think it's going to get any easier when my daughters uh, get in line to uh, to leave as well. So uh, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And uh, this is the program that desires and seeks to take every thought and make it captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, believe it or not, there's some wild ideas running around out there in Christianity that are posing as Christian thoughts. Um, but see, the problem with the devil is is that he, he poses as an angel of light. And if you've ever heard the concept of a wolf in sheep's clothing, um, it's not as if Satan comes to us dressed up in uh, a red suit, a red union suit with uh, with horns and a pitchfork. And uh, and maybe some piercings and, and some smoke coming out of his nostrils. No, Satan is far more subtle than that. And uh, so as a result of it, when Satan comes to us and he wants to deceive us, he comes to us um, in Jesus's name. He comes to us dressed as a Christian. He comes to us dressed as an angel of light. He, and uh, there is a day coming when Satan himself will apparently uh, be able to work miracles through some dude that uh, Paul writes about in uh, in uh, Second Thessalonians, and that guy's called the man of lawlessness. So uh, we live in perilous times. Things are not so good in Christianity. And so this show, what do we do? We compare what major Christian leaders, and maybe even not so major Christian leaders, people who are famous among their set of friends, maybe even a local pastor or two, and we uh, we listen in on what they're saying and compare it to the Word of God. And believe me when I tell you, there's some strange stuff going on out there. The man of lawlessness sounds like a Clint Eastwood character. Yeah, he does, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you know, do do. You know, you put a little, you know, <laughs> Western music in the you know background. You, you see him walking up with spurs. You know, the man of lawlessness. But maybe this time he could be throwing shoes. You think so? Yeah. Why shoes? Well, remember the president had the shoe thrown at him? Oh, that's – okay. So the man of lawlessness is is an Arab guy throwing shoes? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. We need to talk to your therapist, John. <laughs> oh, man. Um, this is a good time to remind people that uh, Pirate Christian Radio, we have a January book of the month that we would like you to read. If you have not read it, it is absolutely mandatory. That's not how you pronounce it. Mandatory that you read this book. This book is called Christianity and Liberalism. It is a classic and funny enough, um, even though it has some these and thous in it when it comes to quoting the scripture, the biblical arguments given by J. Gresham Mason in Christianity and Liberalism work today against our new postmodern liberals, the uh, the emergence and uh, and their and their ilk. So uh Folks, if you have not read J. Gresham Mason's Christianity and Liberalism, you need to do so. And go to piratechristianradio.com. During the month of January, we have a, a, a copy of the uh, the cover for this ebook that we're making available online on the homepage. Click on the homepage, and then you'll see instructions on how to purchase it. It is only $5.95, and all of the proceeds go to support Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. So... 
There you go. There's our plug for the day. You, you got it. You've got to read this. So, all right. Today we've got some listener email. We have some news, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time on uh, the deity of Christ. Who is Jesus? Right? Who who is he really? Who did he claim to be? You know, I've made the claim that uh, he's actually he's come saying that he was God in human flesh. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to spend some time in the biblical text today looking at the deity of Christ and helping you see it so that uh, when the time comes, should you need to share your faith with somebody who thinks that Jesus is somebody less than the one true God in human flesh, that you have the biblical uh, arrows in your quiver ready to put on the string and let fly, right? So, uh, all right, email. Um, Regarding Greenland. Now, John, you told me that uh, Greenland was uh, – that was a marketing word. Okay. Marketing. Well, uh, Kyle writes, and uh, and uh, he he's from Wisconsin, and uh, he writes, and he's got a good point here. Uh, he says, from my understanding, Greenland was named Greenland because it was a green land. And this is what he said. Now, funny enough, I did a little bit of research to find out if, if this was true. And there are scientists out there who – are making the claim that Greenland was once a green land. Apparently, global warming comes in cycles. Didn't know that. But so, so, so Kyle continues. He says, the name that they named it because it was a good land. It took place during a warm period in human history. Despite what Al Gore and others say, global warming is good for humans. Okay. Look at the climate history and all the great advances in humanity that took place during warmer cycles. Vikings had settlements with crops and livestock in Greenland, you know, at the time they they settled there. But now Greenland has the world's second largest ice sheet that's second only to North America's. And uh, the Little Ice Age destroyed all settlements there, forcing them to leave their settlements and stop any further progress in North America. So it, he's, he sent me a quote here. I'm not, uh, not sure where he got this from, but he says, Beginning around 800 A.D., Greenland was warming. This medieval warm period lasted approximately uh, until 1300 A.D. And during the 14th century, a cold period referred to as the Little Ice Age began and lasted into the 1800s. Fluctuation in climate is significant because it affects the length of growing seasons and the movement of prey animals such as seals, caribou, and walrus. And during the Little Ice Age, ship and communications uh, communication dwindled. Ship communication dwindled between Greenland and supporting pop population centers. Icebergs also choked fjords where the Greenlanders hunted and uh, dwindling migratory seal population. Lasting, lastly, the growing season became too short to support the preferred livestock kept by the Norse. So um, Kyle says that uh, it, the interesting part is that Greenland, just a few hundred years ago, did not have any ice on it at all. And uh, we are told if this happens, again, life will end on the planet as we know it. I'm detecting from Kyle that he's not somebody who's drank the Kool-Aid on this global warming thing. So, good email. Uh, so, there we go. We we got somebody claiming that they've done some research. I checked his sources, and uh, there are definitely some scientists who are in agreement with what Kyle said here. There was a time when Greenland was green. What does that have to do with the faith? Well, it has to do with truth claims, really. Um, and, folks, I'm just not somebody who swallows... Uh, without questioning anybody's truth claims, even Christians, okay? And so uh, what I've noticed about a lot of these environmental folks is that they've actually kind of got some kind of a little mini religion going on. They have doctrines that you have to adhere to, and if you don't tow the company line on their doctrines, you're you're branded some kind of a, 
of a, of a climate heretic. You know, you don't care about the planet or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I just I like questioning the facts and looking to see if the evidence supports the claims. Do humans cause global warming? Um, show me the evidence that that's the case. And, 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 you know, obviously, long before automobiles, Greenland was once green. Okay. So, uh, you know, so shouldn't we be worried about, you know, shouldn't be, we be more worried about global cooling? That too. Yeah. You know, what's funny is, is that we had a little bit of a scare. I don't know if you guys were paying attention to the news that were, that was coming out of Yellowstone after the, uh, after Christmas, but for a little over a week there, uh, there was a swarm of hurricanes, uh, not hurricanes, swarm of earthquakes that were uh, that were taking place on a daily basis in Yellowstone National Park. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, it just so happens that uh, Yellowstone National Park sits over one of the world's largest caldera volcanoes. If you don't know what a caldera volcano is, that doesn't have a cone. It doesn't, you know, it does. It doesn't have the big cinder cone that you know the other types of volcanoes has. Basically, it's just a big pool of magma just a couple miles below the surface of the earth and this one just happens to be 40 miles long and um it erupts every according to scientists every 600 to 700,000 years it's been 640,000 years according to them since it last erupted so yellowstones do well you're thinking okay so what i mean the the earth has volcanoes erupting on a fairly regular basis around the world right well the problem with super volcanoes um the last time that Yellowstone erupted, it put 230 cubic miles of ash, you know, so take a cubic mile and fill it with ash it, it, into the atmosphere. Well, what does that do? Well, it, it causes severe global cooling. You know, when you, if you got all that much ash in the atmosphere, I mean, what do they say? One third of the uh, United States and Canada, you know, in large parts of Canada would be covered in ash and you can't grow anything in ash. It's it's very un- inconducive for growing things. But then you ha- for six to ten years, you'd have so much fine ash in the atmosphere, we wouldn't really have a growing season anywhere in the planet for six to ten years. In other words, folks living in Southern California like myself, uh, we could expect snowstorms in July. <laughs> and and in, in case you haven't noticed, snowstorms in July could have a disrupting effect upon your ability to grow things. And so, you know, what I, somebody emailed me a link to this, you know, the story. And so I, for a, like a week, I'm sitting there going, Oh man, uh, I, I was a little bit nervous. You know, what happens to the planet if uh, Yellowstone goes off? Not good things. I, I mean, large portions of the population would be, uh, uh, would starve to death. And that's okay because the people who survive then can eat the people who died. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we can have our own ma- major version of the Oregon Trail, right? Yeah, that's not so good. Okay. Got an email from a – well, I don't know this person's name. He didn't send – I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. And, uh, but uh, this person sent me an email to a link that uh, that's on the internet basically making the claim that uh, everybody who's living is going to have a second chance with Jesus. You know, and, uh, you know, he said, this is what this person said. I don't know if it's a guy or a girl says, my friend keeps sending me this. And, uh, this is this in belief, a a poorly written sentence. My friend keeps sending me this in his belief 
he thinks that there's a second chance and he's been a friend for 35 years. I led him to the Lord since I started listening to your show and hearing the Lutheran uh, way of preaching and the Reformation uh, press stuff. He keeps going on about this and I think it's a, it's a, a cop out using the then God might as well have left us out. Even, yeah, so basically the gist of it is I went to the link and it was a very long, poorly strung together biblical argument, basically claiming that, um, you know, you if if you die without hearing the gospel, you're not a Christian now. Don't worry, God's going to give you a second chance. Don't worry, you know it. God's going to save the whole world, and everybody everywhere is eventually going to be saved. We all get a mulligan. Apparently, you know Rick Warren preached on the mulligan theory of the atonement uh, last uh, in Christmas of 2007. So apparently, uh, Jesus is into mulligans, and here basically what it comes down to is you just need some clear passages. And um, I don't know the name of the person who emailed me this, but let me just say this: um, there's a rule when it comes to interpreting scripture, and that is clear passages always govern unclear passages, and you can't draw a. a, a a sharp doctrine unless you have a clear passage that teaches the doctrine. Does that make sense? Okay. So that being the case, um, there's just one super, really super duper clear passage in scripture that kind of rules out this whole idea that we all are going to get a second chance. You know, wouldn't that be great though? I mean, we all get a second chance. You live like hell right now. Go for it. Right. Cause you're going to get a second chance anyway. Anyway, it's Hebrews chapter nine. Um, and uh, I'm going to start at verse um, 20. Well, I'm going to start at verse 24. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in but uh, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the important verse. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Okay. So here's the deal. We have a clear passage, a clear passage. And this is a really fun one because it's bonded to something else. Okay. I love it when scripture gives us parallels to things. Uh, yesterday when we were talking about uh, Jesus's view of the Old Testament. One of the things that was interesting is, is that Jesus tied his resurrection specifically to the historical event of Jonah, you know, spending three days in the uh, in a large fish. Right. And so Jesus hooks in his own resurrection to that. Okay, we have something being hooked together and bonded at this point. Verse 27, Hebrews 927 says, and it as and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I don't care if you can put together a string of biblical arguments that you think, you know, using logic and misinterpretation and taking passages out of context, that basically you think that you can logically see if you can peek behind it and go, oh, God's going to give us all a second chance. 
Um, there's no passage of scripture that you can point to that says that God will give us a second chance. There's no clear teaching on that that says that God is going to give us a second chance. Instead, there is a clear teaching that says the exact opposite. And that's Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now look at what it's bonded to. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So if you don't think that that really means that you live once and then and you die and then you face judgment... Keep in mind that this is bonded now to Christ once for all sacrifice for our sins. Christ isn't repeatedly sacrificed over and over and over and over again for our sins. His sacrifice was a once for all thing. So just as Christ's sacrifice was once for all to bear the sins of many, okay, and he will appear uh, in glory, you know, he has second coming to deal not with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, just as the same as that is concerned, Christ died once. So also man is appointed to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Pretty straightforward, right? So here's the deal. We have a clear passage of scripture that says that, that you don't get a second chance. You live once, you die once, and then you face the judgment. No second chances. Okay? None of this stuff. So what does this, what should this uh, have uh, encourage us Christians to do? Get out there and preach the gospel to everybody quick before Christ comes back or before people die. <laughs> and I mean that. Get out there and preach the gospel. Okay, stop focusing on the minors and focus on the majors. The majors is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, there are people that are going to hell and they're your neighbors. They're your loved ones. They're members of your family. People who live right across the street from you. People that you work with. People that you say hi to at the grocery store. They're going to hell if they don't trust in Christ for their salvation. Preach the gospel to them because we live once die and face the judgment okay and god has given us the ministry of reconciliation right all right so there you go so i know i've i've read stuff like this before that the, the link that he gave me you know regarding all of these you know people who claiming that you know somehow everybody's eventually going to be saved and you know it's it's just not true it doesn't work that way. And the people who do that, they twist the Bible because Scripture is so clear. You live once, die once, face the judgment. End of story. And that's all she wrote. And you got a clear passage of Scripture that's then bonded to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. So if you don't think that uh, we don't live once and then die and face the judgment, then Christ gets to die many times, and he gets a second chance, too, and all that crucifixion stuff, right? No, no purgatory? <sighs> don't get me started on that. Oh, no, there's no purgatory. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, we're going to do our news right now. Cue up the, the news music. Here we go. Um, from the Christian Post. Group lists the top ten Christian bashing moments in America for 2008. With a headline like that, it, uh, the music sounded way too peppy. You know, we should have, you know, Darth Vader's, you know, theme music. Dun, dun, da, dun, dun, da, dun, dun, da, dun. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, Audrey Barrick is the, auth is the author of this story from the Christian Post, and she's a reporter. And she basically says, an organization that works to advance religious liberty for Christians released its top ten list for the most egregious acts of Christian bashing in America in 2008. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm going to read the list. And I'll say, okay, yeah, this is getting worse. Um, 
my question is, uh, what are we complaining about here? We've got it pretty easy as Christians in America, right? You travel to other countries and you profess, profess Christ, uh, you are taking your life into, well, not really your hands because God's the one who's got his hands on you, but uh, you risk losing your life, being persecuted, losing everything, you know, things like that. But here's the list. Uh, let me continue with the story. Topping the list compiled by Christian, the Christian Anti-Defamation Commission is the assault by radical homosexuals after Proposition 8 passed in California in November. In opposition to the amendment defining marriage as between a man and a woman, some gay rights supporters verbally and physically assaulted Proposition 8 proponents, vandalized church property and automobiles, and also blacklisted individuals, churches, and businesses that donated money for the Yes on, uh, for the yes on 8 campaign. Now, granted, this is, that's outright hostility to Christianity. But it, it's not just Christians that, that got this. Also, it was the Mormons, too. Okay. So um, I just think it's interesting that there's now liberal McCarthyism and uh, the liberals aren't calling it McCarthyism. I thought blacklists were bad. You know, if you're not allowed to do racial profiling, how, what? Anyway, isn't this political profiling of some sort? It sounds like. All right. Anyway, second on the organization's list is attacks against Alaska Governor Sarah Palin for her Christian faith during her vice presidential run for the Republican ticket. Okay. Yeah, I remember some... Some of those. Okay. The organization named Barack Obama defames Christianity third on its Christian bashing list. Okay. So pe- apparently President like Obama has defamed Christianity. Um, he claims to be a Christian. Yeah. I don't think he has. It's people in his name. Mm, okay. They don't give the they don't give specifics here, but I mean the last time I checked, remember Rick Warren's Saddleback Civil Forum kind of thing? Barack Obama said that he believes that Jesus died for his sins. Um, that's not generally what somebody who's hell bent on bashing Christianity would say about their faith. Okay, and by the way, um, just so you know, Christ died for socialists as well as capitalists. Uh, Christianity should be involved in preaching the gospel regardless of the political economic situation in whatever country they happen to live in preach the gospel even to the socialists and to the capitalists too believe me when i tell you the capitalists really need to hear about their sins okay all right so okay so um okay number 10 uh let's see uh uh, i'm moving ahead according to the research into president-elect obama's own statement about faith and an examination of obama's position on moral issues the Christian Anti-Defamation uh, Commission has determined that by any biblical and historic Christian standard, Barack Obama is not a Christian, although he claims that he is a devout Christian. So in order for them to make the claim that uh, Barack Obama is attacking Christianity and defaming Christianity, they have determined that he is not a devout, that he is not a Christian. Okay. Um, this is a little bit frustrating. Okay. <laughs> And the reason why it's frustrating is because Barack Obama, I don't care what you think about him politically, he has publicly confessed that he believes that Jesus Christ died for his sins. Right? I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, okay, so that actually falls under um, one of the definitions that we would give regarding somebody who could potentially be a Christian. Now, I don't know if he truly has faith and if he really believes that. But I'm just telling you, he publicly has proclaimed that. Okay? That being the case, um, it seems a little silly saying that he he's, you know, that that he's defaming Christianity. Okay? I've heard him t- 
talk about the Bible and his views on the Bible are just corny and wacky and bad and even heterodox. And I would say they're really off base. I've heard him attack the Bible. That being the case, if he claims that he's a Christian, he needs to clean up his act a little bit and bring his thinking in line with Jesus's regarding the, the scriptures. But Barack Obama has said he believes that Christ died for his sins. Okay, that actually falls as a definition of Christianity. Okay, but apparently the uh, the Christian Anti-Defamation Commission has determined that, that he is not a Christian. That's a, that's a slippery slope. We got to be real careful, folks. Um, wow. Also on the top 10 list is the movie Religious, a documentary by comedian Bill Maher who satirizes organized religion. Agreed. That's a, a open. It was def- the it was designed to be an attack on religion and Christianity. And uh, the CADC listed the movie in its number six spot, calling it a very shallow pseudo intellectual documentary. I, I agree. I mean, the arguments there, I mean, you pretty much Bill Maher, his arguments are not very sharp. In fact, he's about as sharp as a bag full of wet mice. You know, his arguments really lack depth and any real teeth to it. So, I mean, I, I just consider it to be stupid stupidious <sighs> anyway okay let's see uh, uh the number 10 on the list is prop 8 the musical prop 8 the, they've made it into a musical jack black did that okay which stars jack black among other hollywood celebrities the musical defames christ mocks christians and distorts the teaching of the bible the cadc claims as it makes a case for same-sex marriage i haven't seen it don't know maybe it is i mean it wouldn't surprise me but um Okay, so, um, quote, it's time for the Christian bashing to stop and for Christians to no longer be treated like second-class citizens, said Dr. Gary Case, chairman and CEO of the CADC, in a statement, quote, anti-Christian bigotry is is real and growing, and those who engage in it should be exposed and called to account. Um, Do you think the media is going to carry your water for us there? I don't think so. Okay, so let, let me read the list here. So number one was radical homosexuals assault Prop Eight, uh, assault Prop Eight marriage supporters in California, which what, anybody, if it doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not. I mean, Mormons got attacked here. Vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin is attacked. Barack Obama defames Christianity, and uh, Colorado law discriminate criminalizes the Bible. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. SB 200 in Colorado State uh, State Bill recently signed a law criminalizes the Bible. Section 8 of the bill entitled Publishing of Discriminate, uh, Discriminative Matter Forbidden makes publishing the Bible illegal be- because it contains uh, anti-homosexual passages. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. We should do some research on that. Uh, chaplains fired for praying in Jesus' name. Uh, chaplains for the state of Virginia are being denied their right to pray in Jesus' name. And six chaplains were fired for continuing to pray in Jesus' name. I would consider that anti-christian behavior religious the movie yeah minnesota university's professor desecrates communion okay espn anchor dana jacobson said f jesus okay okay yeah all right so attacks on christianity they're real and they're happening and what are we going to do about it what should we do about it preach the gospel stop complaining about the fact that you are being persecuted you know what this reminds me um going to have to do some we're going to have to get into the book of acts during the break i'm going to look something up in the book of acts and i would like to challenge you christians out there rather than complaining and whining about the fact that there are people who are treating us poorly and who are upset and who are being persecuted um 
I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently on this issue. Now, I understand this is bad. We live in a free country, and uh, nobody should be discriminated against. But, hey, you know, uh, non-Christians don't like us, and uh, they're offended by the gospel. At least I hope that's what they're offended by instead of your obnoxiousness, but that's a different story. Anyway, we'll be right back, and when we come back, we'll talk more about this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. That's talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, and when we get back, we're going to take a look at the, um, the apostles and their attitude regarding persecution. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact... LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Warning, listening to this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your pastor is uh, seeker sensitive, ooey gooey, ishy squishy, and just super positive and wants to share nothing but love and no condemnation or or wrath or anything about sin. (laughs) <laughs> All right, we're talking about uh, the story that that appeared in the uh, Christian Post group list, top 10 Christian bashing moments in America. We questioned one of them. Um, but here's the deal. What should be, I mean, we've got the Christian Anti-Defamation Commission. I'm sure that they're a worthy organization. I'm not bashing them, but uh, Christians, you know what? it's time for us to get real about persecution here. And, and since we live in a post-Christian world, a post-modern America, and uh, Christianity is even being attacked from within Christianity. By the way, that's always oh so fun. Um, but I, I would like to um, to read a passage of Scripture for you and challenge you with it as far as what our attitude should be regarding persecution. 
Uh, so we're going to start at Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly, regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Apparently the glory was falling, and they were drunk in the Spirit and token the Holy Ghost. A kidding joke. <clears throat> Now they were all together in Solomon's colonnade and one of the and none of the rest dared to join them but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats and as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns from around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay? Sounds really good, right? Okay? Who on earth could have a problem with this, right? I mean, they were taking care of the sick, and, and you know, they were basically being a blessing to the community in the days before there were hospitals. But... There's that verbal eraser. Uh, Acts, verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. I think that would count as a, as an act of... Let me see here. Uh, that would be Christian bashing. What do you think? Putting them in prison? Yeah. Okay. So high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Uh, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And uh, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, this is crazy talk here. Okay, most of the time when there's a prison break, I don't know if you've noticed that there's a, actually a show on Fox, I think it's called Prison Break. The whole point of if you break out of prison is to get as far away from the prison as possible, right? So God apparently doesn't even understand the basic principles of breaking out of prison because he sends an angel to uh, break them out of prison and then tells them to go stand in the public square and keep preaching the gospel, right? Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, quote, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, uh, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, so they're trying to figure out how they got out of prison. And wouldn't you know, somebody says, hey, wait a second, they're out there preaching. <laughs> so what did they do? They brought them in, but they didn't do it forcefully because they didn't want to get in trouble with the people. So and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Who's, who's the man they're talking about? Jesus and his blood. Why? Yeah, they, they crucified him. But Peter and the apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand 
as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Listen to that. Peter is preaching the gospel even to the chief priest and the Sadducees, right? And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those to obey him. Okay? So they're out preaching the gospel. They get arrested. An angel lets them out of prison and then they, and tells them to go keep preaching. They, they keep preaching. They get brought back in before the, the, the governors, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the officials. And what do they do? They preach the gospel to those guys for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, that Christians would actually be preaching about the forgiveness of sins nowadays. Few do. Okay. So when they heard this, um, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I've got great news for you. Jesus died for your sins. And we're out here proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And what did these guys want to do? They wanted to kill them. Okay. Remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? You know, Jesus shows up and he goes, you know, to Lazarus's tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out and everyone is like floored. Why? Because they've never seen anything like this. A guy who's been dead for four or five days who stinketh. That's what it says in the King James Version, by the way. That's fun if you read that. You know, they didn't want to open up the, the tomb because he stinketh. Um, Jesus calls him out. He's raised from the dead. And what did the Jews want to do to thank Jesus for raising this guy from the dead? They wanted to kill him. Okay, folks, um, just a little reality check here. People who are not Christians, they are at war with God. They are by nature objects of God's wrath. They are at war with him. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, and they're not interested in God by nature. Okay. And so when we hear and read passages like this where the apostles preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin and their response was that they wanted to kill the apostles, we should read something like that and go, okay, that's the way people normally behave. If you're preaching the gospel, it's an offense. It's a stumbling block to Jews and an offense to Greeks. And uh, we should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according with the, according to the scriptures, and he rose again three days after he's buried, you know, according to the scriptures. That's gospel. Christ died for your sins. God, the, the apostles here proclaim the forgiveness of sins, and to thank them for this good news, the Jews want to kill him. Now, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up, and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Galilee said, let's discuss. Okay. And he said to the men of Israel, take care uh, what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis, uh, Thutis arose, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, and he too perished, and... All who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took Gamaliel's advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Okay, they beat them. Let me find the Greek word there because I think that's going to be an important word. 
<laughs> Summon. Okay. Uh, the apostles. Oh, skin flaying. Yeah, they flayed their skin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, depot. To beat or to whip. To flay the skin. A punishment. Okay, there you go. All right, so they uh, had their skin flayed. They were whipped. Okay. Beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Okay, now stop right there. Do you think beating the apostles would definitely count as Christian bashing? I mean, in the literal sense of the word, that's real bashing going on there, isn't it? Yeah, and, and what was it again? It was a skin fling. Yeah, a whipping. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, I, it sounds painful. Okay. And so in the next verse, it says that the, the, uh, the apostles went and got an attorney and they sued them. <laughs> Actually, that's not what it says. Listen to this. Verse 41. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus's name. Okay, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here we got this news story. Group lists top 10 Christian bashing moments in America in 2008. And yeah, it's terrible. I mean, with the exception of one of them that I, I have to question because I think that I think they went a little far, right? Um, um, a lot of this is bona fide Christian bashing. And what should be our attitude? Well... Yeah, we live in America and we all should have equal rights and, the, and we have freedom of speech and things like that. So from a civil point of view, this is not a good development. But from a religious point of view, I'm looking at this going, wow, some Christians have actually been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for Jesus Christ. Right? I think that's one of the ways we have to look at this. Why? Because we've been told over and over and over again by the latest and greatest fad preachers available in the Christian market to have your best life now, that you can live a life of purpose, that the Christian life is a life of abundance, right? Well, um, gosh, that's funny because... Um, Jesus says in Acts, uh, Jesus says that he's going to show people how much that they're going to have to suffer for his name, right? You know, suffering is part of the Christian experience. And uh, what did they do to Jesus? They, oh, he's the master and they crucified him and persecuted him. We should expect the same things. And folks, when you experience suffering and persecution for the, for the, because you're actually proclaiming Christ in the gospel, rejoice. That would be your best life now? Rejoice because you are being found worthy. That's what it says. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted as worthy to suffer dishonor. Flies in the face of this whole best life now thing. Okay. Folks, we got to stop acting like martyrs when, when we're being persecuted. Okay. Oh, I'm a martyr. No, you're being found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Preach the gospel. And what should happen with the fact that there's all this persecution going on? I like it in some senses. I like it in this sense. Is that if there's real persecution that happens in, Christ, in, in, in to Christians in America, I think it'll cause a lot of people who are false converts who've come to these easy believism churches that basically say that, you know, that don't preach anything about sin or repentance, only teach that God loves you 
That's it. God loves you, and he wants you to have the best for your life. Those people will fall away if persecution comes. Why? Because they were never Christians to be, to begin with, because they don't understand what the gospel is. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand re- about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They just think that Jesus is their magical genie buddy who's going to make, who, if they apply the right principles or rub his tummy in the right direction, that they might be able to, you know, get things from him. Okay, those people are going to fall away in persecution. They will, they are Splitsville, gone, Okay. Maybe persecution is exactly what we need. Just something to think about, right? All right, okay. The deity of Christ. That's our next segment here. Uh, The deity of Christ. I want to talk to you about the deity of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, yesterday I talked about this and said that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That's who he claimed to be. There's a lot of people out there. You know, Islam says that Jesus is a prophet. Did you know that? That Jesus is a prophet. I mean, it sounds so spiritual. Well, they they have a high view of Jesus. They believe that he's a prophet of God. Well, um, if you were the president of the United States and somebody said, you know, Senator, we think that it's great that you're here with us today. And you go, wait, 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 no, I'm not a senator. I'm the president. Oh, well, Senator, we appreciate that. Um, but Senator, we, we, we think that, no, 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 I'm, I'm the president of the United States. I didn't, no, we don't believe that. So Senator, no, you don't understand. I'm the president. Senator, stop talking like that. We, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Put it in that light. So Islam thinks that, uh, Jesus Christ is, um, well, how do we say it? Um, he's not, the son of God. He's not God in human flesh, but he's a great prophet. We'd like to offer you some lovely parting gifts tonight for thanks for playing, but no, that's not how this works. Okay. And Mormonism has some pretty interesting teachings about Jesus. This is from the, uh, the movie, the God makers. We're going to play a little audio here. would like you to listen to, uh, the Mormon concepts of, uh, deity and Jesus. And, uh, of course there's Mormons who think that this is just mean and evil that they would you know. This is, this was actually put together by people who are former Mormons. So well, here we go. This is the God makers. This is from the God maker cartoon. We've produced a piece of animation to show you what Mormon theology is really all about. Mormonism teaches that trillions of planets scattered throughout the cosmos are ruled by countless gods who once were human like us. They say that long ago on one of these planets, to an unidentified god and one of his goddess wives, a spirit child named Elohim was conceived. Now I've got to stop here. The center of the, of the Mormon religion, I'm not going to call it a faith because it's not a faith. It's a religion. The center of the Mormon religion is what's called the law of eternal progression. The law of eternal progression teaches as man is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. Okay? So the Mormon religion is literally a religion that makes you into a god, makes you into a deity. If you follow the principles, the ordinances, and temple ceremonies uh, of Mormonism, and uh, and you really, you know, you, you hit this, like, top tier of obedient Mormons, then you actually are qualified to become a god. And um, if you're a guy, this is great news because you can actually make you can actually be sealed to a bunch of different women and uh, you get to practice eternal polygamy on your own planet as a god with a bunch of spiritual wives. And what do you do? You make bunches of babies because, you know, eternity would really be boring if you just couldn't have sex the entire time. Anyway, so we continue. 
This spirit child was later born to human parents who gave him a physical body. Through obedience to Mormon teaching and death and resurrection, he proved himself worthy and was elevated to godhood as his father before him. Mormons believe that Elohim is their heavenly father and that he lives with his many goddess wives on a planet near a mysterious star called Korah. Here the god of Mormonism and his wives through endless celestial sex produced billions of spirit children. At least six billion that are living right now. That doesn't count everybody who's lived and died prior to this time. These are, Elohim is, uh, he's busy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed he even has any time to answer any prayers. <sighs> to decide their destiny, the head of the Mormon gods called a great heavenly council meeting. Both of Elohim's eldest sons were there. Lucifer and his brother Jesus. Okay, stop. Did you hear that? At this great council, two of Elohim's sons were present. Jesus and Lucifer. So uh, what is Jesus according to Mormonism? Oh, well, he is um, one of these. He, he's actually our spiritual brother. Okay, so is Satan. Okay, Lucifer, he's our spiritual. See, Jesus and Satan prior to this uh, council are equals. They're equal brothers. They're like Cain and Abel. They're like Mutt and Jeff. Eh, anyway, we continue. A plan was presented to build planet Earth where the spirit children would be sent to take on mortal bodies and learn good from evil. Lucifer stood and made his bid for becoming savior of this new world. Wanting the glory for himself, he planned to force everyone to become gods. Boy, he wanted to force everyone to become a god. I mean, that selfish Lucifer. Yeah, yeah, apparently. Okay, so we continue. Using the idea, the Mormon Jesus suggested giving man his freedom of choice, as on other planets. The vote that followed approved the proposal of the Mormon Jesus, who would become savior of the planet Earth. Enraged, Lucifer cunningly convinced one-third of the spirits destined for Earth to fight with him in revolt. Thus, Lucifer became the devil and his followers the demons. Sent I love the uh, Hanna-Barbera-ish kind of cartoon sounds. To this world. They would forever be denied bodies of flesh and bone. Those who remained neutral in the battle were cursed to be born with black skin. This is the Mormon explanation for the Negro race. The spirits that fought most valiantly against Lucifer would be born into Mormon families on planet Earth. These would be the lighter skinned people, or white and delightsome, as the Book of Mormon describes them. Do you feel any uh, racism uh, there? Early Mormon prophets taught that Elohim and one of his goddess wives came to earth as Adam and Eve to start the human race. So Adam and Eve was actually Elohim and one of his wives, probably one of his favorite one, you know, which kind of begs the question, uh, if that's the case, then how was it that Adam and Eve were deceived and fell? I mean, wouldn't Elohim be the author of evil? Anyway. Thousands of years later, Elohim, in human form once again, journeyed to Earth 
from the Starbase Co-op, this time to have sex with the Virgin Mary. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Virgin Mary and Elohim got it on, and that's how Jesus was conceived. Uh, yeah, the whole virgin thing uh, kind of falls apart at that point. Uh, we'll stop right there, though. So you got the gist of what's going on here in Mormonism. So who is Jesus Christ in Mormonism? Well, he's one of Elohim's uh, many, many billion spirit children who just happened to be at this council and was able to make a bid for becoming the savior of the world against Lucifer. Lucifer got mad and, and caused a, a rebellion in heaven. and uh, But Jesus and Lucifer ultimately really are equals. Right? Right? Well, is that what the Bible teaches? Is, is this Christianity? And by the way, folks, there is a bunch of peop, Christians running around, Christian churches, who are attending small groups and purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive churches, who believe that Mormons are Christians. And they believe that Mormon, Mormonism is just another Christian denomination. No, it's not. It's not another Christian denomination, and they're not Christians. They actually are following a false Christ and a false prophet named Joseph Smith. And uh, what they believe is not in the scriptures, not found anywhere in the scriptures. That's why they attack the Bible. But uh, what does the Bible what does the Bible say about Jesus? Who is he? Well, uh, let's uh, <clears throat> grab your Bibles. We're going to spend some time talking about this. Who is Jesus Christ? Okay, well, here's the deal. Christianity teaches this regarding Jesus. All right, <clears throat> let me quote. Quote, we believe, teach, and confess that God the Son became man, born of the Virgin Mary. God the Son, God the Son, what is that? Well, Christianity believes that God exists as is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are not three gods, there is only one God. Okay. Within the one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the Father were not incarnate in Christ, only the Son was. So we believe, teach, and confess that God, the Son, became man, born of the Virgin Mary, and that the two natures, divine and human, are so inseparably united in one person that there is one Christ. That means one anointed one who is true God and true man who was truly born, suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried in order to be a sacrifice, not only for original sin, but also for all other sins and to propitiate, that means to deflect God's wrath. This same Christ also descended into hell, truly rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God that he may eternally rule and have dominion over all creatures and that through the Holy Spirit he may sanctify, purify, strengthen and comfort all who believe in him, that he may bestow on them life and every grace and blessing and that he may protect and defend them against the devil and against sin. This same Lord uh, Christ will return openly to judge the living and the dead as stated in the Apostles' Creed. That's pretty straightforward, right? By the way, that's what we confess about Jesus Christ from the Augsburg Confession, okay? a Lutheran Confession of Faith, and I would say a Christian Confession of Faith. So who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, um, we're going to have to uh, spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. For instance, uh, according to the Old Testament, how many gods are there? One. One, okay. In fact, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Okay. That's different than the Mormons. That's a little different. Yeah. If, apparently, if there's no other gods, well, they would say, well, if, uh, you just ha- can't have any other gods before Elohim. You can have other gods behind him, right? You be smoking something to believe that. Um, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, one, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. How many gods? One. There's one. Uh, verse uh, 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him only and swear by his name. So uh, does God allow people to worship other gods? No. Mm, no, not at all. Okay. Now, Jesus came as Savior, right? Yes. According to Mormonism, he's he's also the Savior. But who is really God in the Mormon pantheon of gods? For us, it would be Elohim, the Father, right? Not Jesus Christ. He's not our God. He's just our Savior. Anyway, we're going to we're going to take our first bre- second break actually. I'm getting old. <clears throat> take our second break and we come back we're going to continue talking about the subject of who Jesus Christ is. And uh it's important that we Christians get this straight and we be able to biblically defend this doctrine, the deity of Christ and and it's kissing cousin really the trinity itself. But uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the second hour of Fighting for the Faith. And if you're listening on a different network and you want to catch that hour, you can do so at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Sissy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible.
right, we're back. You, you are listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're in the middle of a biblical lesson of sorts. Kind of unpacking some things regarding who is Jesus Christ. And today, the foil for what we're discussing is the uh, Mormon doctrine of Jesus Christ. Uh, they claim that he's um, the spiritual brother of Lucifer. Son of Elohim. And Elohim uh, apparently uh, procreated him with one of his many, many, many spiritual wives that he was able to uh, earn as a result of being a good Mormon for his God on another planet. I want to point something out to you. Isaiah chapter 43. This is, does the scripture say that, that uh, we can become gods? That if we are obedient to God, that we can become a god? The answer to that question is a definitive no. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 and 11 says this. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any formed after me. Uh, does that sound pretty definitive? Before me no God was formed, nor will there be any after me, right? I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. That's pretty clear. Uh, this whole idea of the law of eternal progression, which the uh, Mormons believe in, it's complete poppycock. It's a doctrinal lie. It's a heresy. It's a satanic deception. And if you believe this, you believe that doctrine, you don't really believe in Jesus Christ, not the one of scriptures. You believe in a false Christ and a false gospel. And you're going to hell. Now, I know a lot of people out there who say, oh, God would never send Mormons to hell. I mean, have you ever seen those Mormon missionaries? They're such clean-cut, nice boys, and they're such good people. God would never send them to hell. Uh, well, I got bad news for you. Ain't nobody good. Okay? There's no such thing as a good person. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And the Mormons, their solution to sin is them following the laws and ordinances of Mormonism in the hopes of attaining deity someday. That's not going to save them. But what, let's unpack this uh, this concept about Jesus Christ. Since there's no God formed before Yahweh, nor will there be after him, and the scriptures, the Old Testament are clear, the Old Testament scriptures are clear. There is only one God. One, not two. Uh, not three, one. There's only one God. And here's the fun part. Jesus actually claims to be that one God. Did you know that? Tis true. In fact, um, I read this story last night to my uh, to my family without my son because he left for the Navy. <laughs> ah, this is a wonderful story. Okay. And I want you to listen very carefully to this one. Mark, in uh, in affirming the deity of Christ, does so in a very, very fun way. Uh, it says this, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to the people, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lie. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. We're going to pause there for a second. Put yourself into the context in which this event took place. This is Jew, This is really Israel. Okay? Judaism of the first century. The temple is still in Jerusalem. The Mosaic law and the Levites, and the priesthood, and the sacrifice of animals is still in full swing. And according to a Jew, and their understanding of how sins are remitted, um, sins just don't, you can't just declare somebody to have their sins forgiven. You have to go for the entire rigmarole of actually taking an animal and having its throat slit and having it bled out and, and, and the whole gross, terrible cult of the sacrificial animals at the temple, right? And ultimately, to a Jewish mind, who is the only one who can forgive sins? That would be God himself. Only God can forgive sins. So here Jesus has got this paralytic standing in front of him. Well, standing is not the right word. Lying in front of him. And Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And you would say, and they're going, huh? And that's exactly what happens here. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's committing the sin of blasphemy. He's saying something that cannot that, this, that only God can do. He's basically claiming to be God at this point, and they get it. And they say, who can forgive sins except for God alone? And the answer to their question is nobody except for God alone can forgive sins, right? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and take up your bed and walk? Now, this is a great little trick question that Jesus has got going on here because the question is, which is easier to say? Well, obviously, it's much easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, right? You can say that all you want because how can you prove it, right? You can say to somebody, hey, your sins are forgiven. They go, wow, thanks. Um, but there's no tattoo. There's no piece of paper. There's no seal. There's no, there's no document that's signed from heaven that says your sins are forgiven, you know, that, that goes along with that. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven, right? So Jesus asked them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or say, rise up and take your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And to which we should ask the question, what just happened there? Well, you want to know what just happened? Jesus claimed to be God and he proved it. How? Because only God can forgive sins. Jesus said he forgave sins and to prove that he could forgive sins, he healed the paralytic. The paralytic's healing physical healing was bonded with, connected to, inseparably connected to Jesus' proclamation that his sins were forgiven. 
And the Pharisees who heard that and were upset were absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. And yet Jesus is running around the landscape now forgiving sins without sacrificial animals and without a temple. And how can he do such a thing? He can only do it if he was God himself. Right? Righto. On the nosy. So we know that uh, that Jesus forgave sins. Well, there's more to the story here. Um, remember we said that uh, the, the scriptures are clear that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, right? Okay. Um, remember Jesus' little encounter with uh, Satan while he was, being, while he was uh, fasting in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the devil? Yeah, we read this in Matthew chapter 4, um, verse 8. The, it says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Satan wanted Jesus to worship him. And Jesus basically told Satan to go take a hike because the scriptures say to worship the Lord your God and to serve him only. Making it pretty clear that Jesus was very well versed in the scriptures regarding who is the only being who is qualified to receive worship, right? And that person is God himself. So... Now, before we get to the punchline, I want to bring up another passage. Did you know that the Apostle John actually made the fatal mistake of bowing down to worship at the feet of an angel? Did you know that? It's actually recorded for us in uh, the book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse, according to John. Um, In uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 8, um, it says this, And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. There was an angel that was accompanying him while he was seeing some of these these things, these visions. And, uh, and he says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me, but he said to me, Don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, And all who keep the words of this book worship God. So, okay, so we got Jesus telling Satan that it says in the scriptures, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We have the apostle John making the supreme mistake of bowing down to worship an angel who was accompanying him while he was receiving these visions. And the angel said, don't do it. I'm just a servant like you. So you think worship is a big thing? Okay. It's a pretty big deal, right? And um, in, 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 the, in the book of Acts, we actually have this wonderful story uh, where uh, Paul and Barnabas had, uh, had healed somebody. And, uh, and the people in the town thought that he was a uh, – they thought that uh, Paul was uh, – Paul and Barnabas were, were the gods, okay? And they were going to sacrifice animals to them because they thought they were part of the the Greek pantheon of of gods. But it says this, Acts 14, 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only human. uh, We are only men and human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the one living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Okay. 
So uh, did Paul and Barnabas accept worship from uh, these people on their missionary journey? No. Did the angel accept worship from the Apostle John? No. Did Jesus agree to worship Satan? No. Why? Because the scriptures are clear that there is only one God and we are only to worship him. Now we come to the fun punchline. Okay. All right, I'm going to read this in context, Matthew 14, and let me pull this up, Matthew 14. Uh, This is the story of uh, uh, Jesus walking on the water, and uh, there's there's something really fun that goes on here. And listen to this, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after that, he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land and beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the water. Uh, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased And those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, that the disciples worshipped Jesus. They worshipped him. Yet, Jesus knows the scriptures that we are to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Jesus accepted the worship of the apostles. Who does this Jesus think he is? Well, funny enough, he thinks he's God. We're going to spend a little time on a couple more passages here that you definitely must hear. John chapter 5. Okay. John chapter 5, we read this about Jesus. Okay, and I'll bring this in context. Um, Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus healed somebody and and the man told everyone that it was Jesus who healed them. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. He said, my father is working until now and I am working. Verse 18, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay. That's the thing about Jesus. He has this really bad habit of speaking of himself as if he's deity. Okay. And his Jewish audience constantly picked up on it. And it was driving the Pharisees bonkers. Okay, believe me, if, if, if the Pharisees had been in the boat, you know, in the Matthew 14 story and had seen the apostles worshiping Jesus, the disciples worshiping Jesus, they would have flipped their chickens. 
or lids. <laughs> I'm telling you, why would they have done that? Why? <laughs> why? Because uh, only God is to be worshipped. And here we got Jesus claiming that he that he's the God is his Father, and they immediately pick up and go, "Wait a second, you're making yourself equal with God because you're calling God your Father." And Jesus, uh, all right, <laughs> on the nosy, you got it. But then we've got this wonderful passage in John chapter 10. And then we'll get to John chapter 8. Great passage. John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33. I'm going to back it up a little bit. Okay. Um, Verse 25. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus speaking to the Jews. He said, Jesus answered them. He says, I told you. And you do not believe. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Let me back up. Verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, uh, the, the, at the time that the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And when Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the anointed one, tell us plainly. Uh, Jesus answered them, well, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, Imagine yourself a good monotheistic, fiercely monotheistic Jew of the first century. And you know, Isaiah says, before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. A hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And you've just heard Jesus say that I and the Father are one. What would any good Jew do at this point? Get the rocks. This man has just committed the sin of blasphemy. This is worse than any false prophet, okay? Any false prophet. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. Jesus answered them. He said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. That's pretty straightforward. What do you think? Yeah, sounds it. Yeah. So here we got Jesus you know, by saying, I and the Father. One is basically saying, me and uh, the Father, we're, I'm God. And they got it, and they wanted to kill him for it. Okay. This is the other fun passage. Okay. All right. This is where it gets fun. John chapter 8. We're going to read a lot of stuff here in John chapter 8. Important. Jesus actually claimed to be God. And folks, this is what we got to come to grips with. There are a bunch of people who have a lot of ideas about who Jesus was, but none of their ideas mean a hill of beans. The question is, who did Jesus claim to be? Jesus did not claim to be some, you know, social activist like Gandhi. Okay? He claimed to be none other than the God of the Jews, the one true God in human flesh. That's what he claimed to be. He accepted worship, said that he and the Father were one. He made himself equal to God. And even more pernicious than that, he uses divine the divine name for himself. Okay? One of the divine names from the Old Testament. And that divine name is I Am. And you're thinking, I Am? 
well, it's not I was or I were, it's I am, okay? And um, to help with this, uh, we're going to have to look at the book of Exodus. Exodus, um, let me see if I can find this. Ah, here it is. Exodus chapter 3. Before we get to, to John chapter 8, we have to do Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush. So God's calling to Moses out of the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Smart man, right? So we've established who Moses is talking to. Who is Moses chatting with? He's literally on the phone with God, okay? God's talking to him through this burning bush. So then the Lord, Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the city of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you I, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, then Moses said to God, well, if, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name what shall I say to them God said to Moses I am who I am he said say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you so God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush Moses is freaking out at this point, trying to, you know, he's trying to wiggle out of this little assignment. And he's saying, well, okay, so I go to them and who, who, who should I say your name is, right? And what's the divine name that God gives for himself? I am. I am. Okay. Now, John chapter 8. Okay. We got this wonderful, long running little dialogue, okay, that's going on between Jesus and the Jews. And, um, um, this, this escalates in, this doesn't turn out very well. Okay. This is not one of those warm, fuzzy, secret sensitive moments for the, for the Jews who were in this battle with Jesus. Starting in verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, 
Jews are people of the book, right? They already have the Torah and the prophets and you know, right? Okay. So they understand what it means to have a word of God. And Jesus here is saying, if you abide in my word, and they're going, what, 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 what? Abiding your word. We have the word of God. Who, who do you, who are you? So they answered him, well, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? Well, Jesus answered them, well, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. <laughs> this gets fun. So they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, and this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your fa that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. God is our father. Jesus said to them, well, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I have come. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that, well, you're not of God. <laughs> I thought that uh, Rick Warren said that God hasn't made anybody that he doesn't love, right? doesn't look like that. <sighs> well, God shows his love for us in that Christ died for our sins. Well, there's a context for God's love, and it has to do with the forgiveness of sins. And these people are not hearing God's word because they're of their father, the devil. And Jesus is blasting them in their sin, right? Remember, Jesus said he didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. Okay, it's not, it's not the righteous who need Jesus. It's sinners. So Jesus calls, comes to call sinners. These are truly sinners, but they don't think they are. So Jesus is working overtime here to show them just how badly they need a savior by hitting them really between the eyes with a two by four um, with their sinfulness. And um, even worse for them, he's about ready to begin making himself out to be God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <clears throat> the supreme insult going on there. Samaritan is a racial epithet. Um, similar to what we would, you know, the N-word today it has the same weight as the word Samaritan did back then. So Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now the Jews said to him, well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Good question, right? 
see, that's the thing. Jesus keeps saying these things, and he keeps speaking in a way that makes himself greater than any of the any, than Abraham and the prophets. And truly, he is. So Jesus answered them. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If you were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus is talking like he knows Abraham, like they're good buddies, you know. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he just committed blasphemy. He just said, he just applied the divine name from Exodus chapter 3 to himself. Who shall I say sent me? I am. So they picked up stones, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus uses the divine name for himself and claims to be none other than God in human flesh. Fun, isn't it? Yeah. So there's other passages that we can go to. I mean, remember at Christmas time, during Advent, we uh, there's particular um, passages of Scripture that we read in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Isaiah chapter 7 is one of those passages. And um, let me read it for you in context. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, this is verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7, ask, for a, ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz, know that wicked person, said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men and that you would weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Prophecy regarding Jesus, right? That he would be conceived, born of a virgin, number one. But second, that he would be named Emmanuel. Manual means God with us. Even long before, 600 years before Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, he was spoken of that he would be conceived by the Virgin Mary and that he would be called Emmanuel. Very interesting term, considering the fact that this was, Isaiah is a Jewish prophet who believes that there's only one God, that you should worship only one God. And uh, Isaiah is the prophet who received the word of the Lord that there before him no gods were made, nor will there be any after him. And yet he says that when the virgin bears the son, they will call his name God with us. And who is Jesus exactly? God. He's God. He's God with us. Over and over and over again, the scriptures are clear. Okay? They will call his name Emmanuel. And by the way, this is, by the way, is fulfilled... Okay, in Matthew chapter one, during one, you know, in one of the Christmas passages. Okay, <clears throat> there. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
Matthew 1, verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you believe Mormonism, apparently uh, Elohim and uh, Mary got it on, but that's not what the passage says. It says that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is fulfilled, literally, you know, at Jesus' birth, right? God with us. That's who Jesus is. Not a God, not a, you know, something less than God. And yeah, another good passage here. What did the Apostle Paul, uh, the, the Apostle John call Jesus? Well, look at John chapter 1. The Jehovah's Witnesses butcher this, but good news is, you know your Greek and you got a good translation. It's clear as a bell. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, by the way, is the Word, right? Jesus is the Word made flesh. And who does John 1, 1 say that Jesus is? God. 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 It says that he's God. In fact, John chapter 20, we read this yesterday, Okay. Remember, we were reading about Doubting Thomas. Two days in a row, we're going to read the same passage. Slightly different emphasis. Important that you hear it. John chapter 20, verse 24, read this. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see his hands and the nail marks and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And listen to what Thomas said. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. In the Greek, Hakurius mu kai theos mu. The Lord of me and the God of me. What does Thomas confess about Jesus? That Jesus is his Lord and his God. It's pretty clear, right? It's funny. I was actually, <laughs> I actually um, shared this with a Jehovah's Witness one time. And this gal told me straight out that that was not Thomas confessing that Jesus was his Lord and God. That was Thomas taking the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> If that was really the case, then Jesus should have uh, rebuked him, right? But does Jesus rebuke him? No, he says, Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Believed what? Believe that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Believed what? That Jesus is Lord and God. Right? That's what the immediate context is implying. So Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for calling him his Lord and his God. He blesses him he says he's blessed 
And those of us who have not seen Jesus with our own eyes, but instead believe as a result of the words of the apostles, the eyewitness testimony recorded for us in the New Testament scriptures, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who's come to earth and died for our sins. We are truly blessed. Along with Thomas, who was blessed, who confessed Jesus as his Lord and his God. It's good stuff, isn't it? Any doubt about who the New Testament says he is? No. And see, that's the thing. All of this occurs in a Jewish context, a fiercely monotheistic religion. Okay? Okay, and the word was God. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, the word became flesh. All right, I'm looking at my notes here. There's other passages that we can go to. just want to pick out some of the stronger ones. <laughs> Which he bought with his own book. This is a good one. This is a little esoteric. Add this to your to your quiver. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Okay. And uh, I have to expand out the context a little bit here. here. Um, um, Paul, I think, is here speaking uh, to the Ephesians, uh, the, the Ephesian church before he's on his way to Jerusalem. He says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. <laughs> or purchased is another, is another is, it's obtained could be say, it could be purchased or redeemed. Uh, the Greek word there works that way. Um, so let's, let's just do the grammar to take care of the church of God, which he, that's God, obtained or purchased with his own blood. He what? bought it. Yeah. When did God bleed? Crucifixion? Uh-huh. What's the implication there? Christ bled, and who is Christ then? God. God. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, his own blood. All right. Anything else I want to bring to this? There's some other good passages in, in Colossians. Uh, I'm just wondering if I want to uh, spend the time working on those. This is not ex- designed to be a complete... Uh, example of all of this but um there's other passages that you can look at google it you know the deity of christ it's there for you to discover and it's an important doctrine in fact if you deny the deity of christ you're not a christian you're something else um another jesus hang on let me find this in uh in the new testament uh other Oh, man, I can't believe I'm not going to find this. <laughs> Words. Here we go. Mm. I think it's in Second Corinthians. Another Jesus. Corinthians. See, that's the fun part. Sometimes, you know, you just kind of go freeform. And, uh... <laughs> Corinth... Ian's. There we go. Okay, Second Corinthians eleven. Yeah, that's, that's it. See, I got to That's you become dependent on a computerized Bible, and uh, what happens? You become dependent on a computerized Bible. Second <laughs> Corinthians eleven. Okay. 
Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I wish you would bear with me a, a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband and to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So Paul here is really rebuking the Corinthian church, saying that that there are people out there who are proclaiming another Jesus and proclaiming another gospel, and to their shame, just as the as Satan the serpent deceived Eve, they're putting up with these other Jesuses and other gospels. There is no other gospel. There is no other Jesus. The one true Jesus, the one true Jesus is the one true God in human flesh. And what did he come to earth to do? To set an example for you to follow so that you can save yourself? Not on your life. No way. The one true God became a man in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. We just celebrated Christmas. And his mission was to seek and save the lost and to die for the sins of the world, even your sins. The ones, all those pernicious sins that you think that God can't forgive you of, he, he died for those. He died to save you, to set you free, to redeem you, to literally rescue you. That's what he was here for. And God didn't send a lackey. God didn't send a hireling. God didn't send an angel. He did it himself. He suffered the wrath that you deserve. He filled up. And drank from the cup of his own wrath on your behalf, on my behalf, so that you wouldn't have to die and go to hell. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And who is this Jesus? Who is this only begotten son? It's none other than God himself in human flesh. And there are a lot of people who don't think that this is an important doctrine anymore. There's a lot of false teaching out there running around regarding this. And yet the scripture is clear. Jesus is God. He was worshipped as God, and he knew that only God was to be worshipped. He used the divine names for himself. He forgave sins, and only God is the one who can forgive sins. And he received people calling him God, like Thomas. You are the Lord of me and the God of me. And all of the scriptures affirm this. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. And it's one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And if you deny it, you ain't in. You out. And we must preach the gospel to you then. Treat you as an unbeliever. And what does that mean? Preach the gospel to you. Tell you of the wonders of God and the things that he has done. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Chris. Yes. Now, you've... Um you you've baited something in the very beginning. I did with the God makers. We only played a small portion. Yeah, of it. we did. Where can you go to see the whole thing? Tell you what, I'll be nice and I'll put a link to the video. At if you go to fightingforthefaith.com and you find today's show and um and it'll be under uh, January sixth. I don't know what I'm going to call it yet. I'll there's I'll say <laughs> <laughs> links to resources mentioned on the show and I'll put a link up to the YouTube video that you can see the uh, the Godmakers video if you want to. Learn more about Mormonism. Folks, and here's, here's the thing. Your, your Mormon neighbors, they're not Christians. They're going to hell. They, they believe in a false Jesus and they believe in a false gospel. And the law of eternal progression is, is a pernicious satanic lie. And they're, they're not good people because you ain't a good person either. You're a sinner. <laughs> okay? 
in the, in needing salvation, and their Christ didn't die for them because their Christ doesn't exist. And a lot of Mormons don't even know what their own faith teaches. Uh, this is true. There's a lot of people who attend Mormon churches. They kind of progressively boil the frog there. You know, if you the, the Mormon missionaries don't come to you teaching you the law of eternal progression. They get you to read the Book of Mormon and then ask you to pray about it so that God will give you a burning in your bosom so your heart will be warm so you know it's true, right? Um, and then they progressively lead you farther and farther into this. this it, a lot of these these doctrines, they don't discuss with people at first. They have to initiate you and get you comfortable to where you won't jump out of the pot as they're trying to boil you. So <clears throat> keep that in mind. All right. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard in today's program, you can do so at TalkBack at FightingForTheFaith.com. Until next time, God bless you.